Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, February 8th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, more funds could be headed to cities and counties for infrastructure improvements if legislators find common ground. And we're doing all this fiction and fantasy and bills that don't do anything because we're not willing to spend the money to fix the problem. Then we'll meet some of the state's top artists as they prepare to receive the Governor's Arts Awards. And in our book club, a conversation with author Jarrett Rominski about his book exploring the life and loyalty of people in Civil War Mississippi. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A bill to divert more sales tax dollars to Mississippi municipalities for infrastructure continues to make its way through the legislature. Lawmakers in the Mississippi Senate voted 42 to 9 for Senate Bill 2455. The bill would increase the sales tax return to cities over a five-year period. But there's one stipulation attached to state revenue. Republican Senator Pro Tempore Terry Terry Burton of Newton co-authored the measure. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier, how it would work. Well, as a former mayor, I can tell you the, uh, the any assistance that we can get from the sales tax diversion, if we can imp- increase that over the next several years, will be very helpful to cities. One of the problems that cities have in Mississippi is, unless it's a special bed tax or restaurant tax, there is no local option sales tax. In other states, there are local option sales taxes available. And the only way you can get money to operate city government is property taxes. And you don't want to keep continuously raising property taxes and raising garbage and sewer fees, so water fees. So this diversion will assist those cities in trying to utilize some of those funds to do those infrastructure things that are beneath the surface, pipes and, and sewer pipes and water lines and all those kinds of things. And then we can worry about doing the streets, but we've got to get fixed underneath the surface first. There were um, different uh, computations in there. It's kind of complicated. It looked like cities and towns would get different amounts. Well, it would be an overall increase of 0.3% the first year that we reached that 1% threshold of growth. And then the next year would be another 0.3. Over a five-year period, it goes from 18.5 to 20 cents. uh, Of the 20%, 18.5 to 20% over a period of five years, that we attain that growth of 1% per year. 
So, yeah, the numbers are going to be different because each city now gets a different figure every year. Uh, for you know, depending on how much sales are done in their business in their town, that's how much the percentage is, and that means that Flowood, for example, is going to get a lot more uh, sales tax diversion currently than Newton does, and in the future it would be the same. They'll get more than Newton does because they have more business than Newton does. But this will only happen once the state has reached the one percent. Revenue growth. Right. Once one percent revenue growth is attained, then a, an additional point three percent will go to that eighteen and a half. Once uh, another year happens, then that'll be another point three percent. Over a period of five years, it goes to twenty percent uh, eventually, and then it will stay there. The concern is there's no there's not any hard money being put into roads and bridges. These are things that are contingent upon revenue growth. Uh, what do you say to critics who say something needs to be done besides this? Well, something can possibly be done. We, we're not even halfway through the session yet. So, yeah, there's a lot of time to do some work, and I know that infrastructure is a high priority for our side and the House side. So I would be willing to uh, say that before the end of the session, you will see some hard dollars put towards some infrastructure issues. Senator Pro Tempore Terry Burton with our Desiree Frazier. Those opposed to the bill say it's a smokescreen and really doesn't provide the needed funding for Mississippi's infrastructure. Democratic Senator David Blunt of Jackson spoke out against the measure, referring to uh, Senator David Parker of Olive Branch, who authored the bill. Can we please just dispense with the fiction and the fantasy that this legislature is doing something for infrastructure? We are not doing what we should do for infrastructure, and this bill does not do anything to help our cities, our counties, our state with infrastructure. You've heard Senator Parker say he doesn't anticipate anything happening this year. You heard him say to Senator Horn that it may be 10 or 15 years before anything happens this year. We've seen gyrations in the House, bills voted on for show, bills that are patently unconstitutional, all of this carrying on claiming that we're going to do something for infrastructure without doing the one thing that we need to do for infrastructure, which is spend more money. Don't go back to your cities and say, I voted for this bill and I've done something to help your city streets, because you haven't. To me, it is the single greatest failure of this term of the legislature that we were not able to come together in a bipartisan way and deal with our infrastructure problems. I believe there's bipartisan support for that. I believe that we all want to help our cities and our counties. We all know there's a state crisis. This does not help your cities. This does not help your counties. What we should have done when we had the opportunity is to cut some taxes, to raise some taxes, to come together with a bipartisan plan and fix it. Senator David Blunt of Jackson. The House passed a similar bill in early January. Coming up, we'll meet some of the state's artists as they prepare to receive the Governor's Arts Awards. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
The state of Mississippi is honoring five of its own for their contributions to the state's artistic community. Each year, the Governor's Arts Awards are presented in categories like performing arts, visual arts, and community arts organizations. This year's winner in the performing arts category is the artistic director of Ballet Mississippi, David Carey. He says even though he started his training late, he's fortunate. I didn't really start ballet till I was about 12 or 13. I had been taking tap and ballet combo classes from the lady Jean Schamberger who had a studio here. But when we went to see the Jackson Ballet perform, Edward Villela was the guest artist with Kelsey Kirkland, who was 15 at the time. And he was a boxer, a former uh, merchant marine or ex-marine or something like that, and had to quit his dance career by his father. And the guy was so powerful and dynamic. And, and I was a very athletic kid, not a big kid, but that really interested me and I looked at my dad and said that's what I want to do so I started that summer when I just turned 13 and which was late and it's really late by today's standards um but I started here at Jackson Ballet with Alvia Cavan Cooper and then later Thalia Mar a couple of years later after her and um just you know I'd, I'd go off to summer seminars I was the only boy in the city of Jackson that did this and probably the state as far as I knew at the time for as late as you say you started, you had a pretty notable career as a ballet dancer. I was very fortunate that I had, you know, two very gifted and strong women as teachers, you know, at an early age. How old were you when you stopped dancing professionally? I had just turned 30, and I had an offer to uh, continue with another professional company in Seattle, but truthfully, I was nursing a issue in my lower back that would literally stop me in my tracks and I never knew when it was going to hit it was like a trick me <laughs> and um, I still deal with it today but because I'm not training it doesn't bother me nearly like that so it just kept driving me crazy and I, at 30 years old I decided you know I've been doing this for about 12 years and it's time to get my undergrad degree and look at the next part of my life and I went on to law school after I got my undergrad at Millsaps, went to Mississippi College Law School, and really had no desire or interest or intent of getting back in the dance world. And yet here you are, artistic and executive director of Ballet Mississippi. Right. It's it's crazy. Um, Ballet Mississippi was going through a lot of transition. We really, you know, just buckled down and tried to save this company, but it just couldn't be done. It was the financial problems were just horrendous. So. When the board decided to suspend the professional operations of the of the company, the only thing we were left with was the school, and we had about a hundred and fifty thousand dollar deficit on a four hundred thousand dollar budget. And he said, "Well, what do you want to do?" And I said, "Well, the only thing I know to do is to rebuild the school and and get this debt paid off, and let's see where we're going to be in a year." And on we went. And the first year we had about we started out with twenty five kids. It grew to forty. And then by the end of the next, the first of the next year, we grew up to about 80 students and uh, things started moving. And I said a nutcracker and it's been, you know, it's been moving ever since. Yeah. Full guns. What does this award mean to you? I'm still processing this. And here's why, because, you know, and I, you know, any artist will say, yeah, this is right. Uh, We never get into this for awards, but when your colleagues or people in your community 
you know, do this. And I had no idea this was being done. When Malcolm called me, uh, he told me this. I thought we were going to talk about a grant that I was working on. <laughs> and uh, I, I, when I answered the phone, I said, I know we got to talk about this grant. He said, no, that's not what I'm calling about. I said, oh, no, is the other one bad? <laughs> you know, I mean, I was doomsday at that day. He said, no, man. He said, uh, you're a recipient for the Governor's Arts Award, and, and uh, you've been selected. And I said, get out of here. What are you talking about? You know, I mean, it was just, it was so weird. So, I mean, it, it it's like, you know, you, you put all these years, I've been in the ballet for about 50 years almost. And, uh, you know, from student to now, and it's like the crown jewel at the, of your work. And I'm just so honored and still dumbfounded by it. And uh, just greatly honored and very proud. I, I don't know what else to say. I'm just very proud of our state too. We've got great artists here. Great place. Congratulations, and thank you so much for being with us. David Keery is the recipient of the Governor's Arts Award, specifically for Leadership in Performing Arts. Thank you, David. Thank you, Karen. I really appreciate it. Singer and songwriter Steve Azar, whose notoriety comes from country music, will receive this year's Governor's Choice Award. He tells us he's honored. At the end of the day, for me, everything I've done is in the name of getting to write songs, record them, and play them for people. Everything I touch that is not that is just an avenue to get me to do that. And that's where I'm happiest. And that's where I feel fulfilled. And that's the easiest thing for me. It took me a while to understand how to mix the Delta in my roots in Mississippi in with the way Nashville did things. And I didn't want to be just generic. I wanted to be honest. And so it took me a long time to understand how to do that. Where did your love of music come from? My dad had the first illegal liquor store in Mississippi. I mean, it was where Eugene Powell hung out, who was Sonny Boy Nelson, and, and little Milton would hub in and out. And so I had all of this music around me, and, and I was able to slip in these juke joints, which were really houses when I was a young kid. And I fell in love with the idea of being able to express your emotions in words and in music. So it was definitely through osmosis. It wasn't genetic. You know, I had a lot of friends, just parents and families, you know, there were musicians and all that. But with me, there was nobody. So we sort of had to blaze a trail that didn't exist. So a lot of gravel roads, a lot of potholes, but eventually uh, made a little noise. You're a country music star. That's how you're pegged. Does that fit you or would you rather be uh, a term? It doesn't fit. I obviously recorded a song that's in the top five most played songs since 2000. And I had three number one videos, all on country music television. But I was always a little bit an outcast. A lot of people called me outlaw. The people that really loved me and respected me was like uh, Charlie Daniels. And it was the people on the, a little bit that were rebels themselves. When you come from Mississippi, okay, it's hard to assume a generic. I don't mean that in a bad way. you got to realize when you're a songwriter and you're honest about it, you're different. And when you're from Mississippi, you're really different because we've been influenced by gospel by blues, by folk, by, you know, rock and roll. I mean, we are the birthplace of American music. And when you're around that, you're sort of in this storm of styles. And you you have to become yourself, and you have to find your identity. So everybody says that I take my own music as Delta Soul. I never said that. And it's been written. It's in my bios. I'm going, like, somebody's got to take that out. It was a reporter that wrote about me when I was on tour with Bob Seger that, I don't know if it was Columbus Dispatch or it may have been when we played Madison Square Garden. That's when people were really writing about me because they understood me because I was with Bob Seger and the arenas were packed and I was playing, you know, a lot of Mississippi stuff 
and my hits, but the Mississippi stuff was really working. And somebody said this guy's got a Delta soul, and that's what his style of music is. It shouldn't. It should be in its own bend. And so, I mean, I've always tried to figure out what it is, but he he sort of articulated it. What does it mean to you to be receiving the Governor's Choice Award? Oh, come on. That's better than anything. I mean, like, I love that because, you know, the whole saying to be accepted by your own, I think it took me coming back home and doing other things like our foundation uh, and getting involved in the community and working with the kids. I'm at the Delta Music Institute today at Delta State and getting the chance to come in once a month and be that artist and resident for the past six years and give them real life experiences with Trisha Walker. So I think it was when I started to get back to the place that gave me so much that I even even was brought up in the conversation. And Governor Bryant and our friends, you know, I love the fact that he celebrates the birthplace of American music like no other I've seen. And he's, he's constantly challenging me. You know, the music festival, the things we do to help the economy down here, because the one thing we got to realize that we can get people to come visit Mississippi if we all come together and if we can get Cleveland to play with Clarksdale and Clarksdale to play with Greenwood and Greenwood to play in Indianola and, and, and everybody plan out their calendars. And I mean that over the whole state, the Gulf Coast, to the Tupelo area, uh, Jackson, Vicksburg. I mean, if we could all put our, get our calendars together and really celebrate who we are in, in the arts world, period. I mean, come on, I grew up eight miles from Jim Henson. You know, that says it all to me. I mean, the Muppets, the most worldly <laughs> characters in their hearts. <laughs> And so that, I mean, I feel like that we're an inch away and a moment away from grasping something. And and the tourism was way up last year because of this. But I do believe that if we keep celebrating that and we come together a little bit, then I think that's even going to get better. Steve Azar is the recipient of the Governor's Choice Award at the Governor's Arts Awards. Steve, thank you so much for being with us. Congratulations. Thank you, Karen, and I'm humbled. I mean, the governor would choose me. It's an honor beyond my belief, so I'm very humbled, and, and he's become a dear friend, so I'm blessed. But thanks so much. The Governor's Arts Awards are tonight at 6 with a public reception at 4.30 at the Old Capitol Museum in Jackson. Coming up, a conversation with author Jarrett Ruminski about his book, Exploring the Life and Loyalty of People in Civil War, Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi readers can step back to a volatile time in the state's history with Jarrett Ruminski's book, The Limits of Loyalty. The Canadian writer is also a researcher and consultant. He's worked, his work has appeared in the Journal of the Civil War Era. In today's book club, Ruminski discusses his examination into the lives of ordinary people in Confederate-controlled Mississippi. He explores how military occupation tested the meaning of loyalty and bonds among differing genders and races. He tells us more. Loyalty to the warring sides during the Civil War. So that means Confederate or Union loyalty, but also all of the different what I call micro and macro loyalties that individual people displayed during the war and during their ordinary lives. So macro loyalties might be uh, the bigger loyalties you give to organizations, to belief systems like your religious belief or your belief in, in a nationalist cause. 
Whereas micro-loyalties are much smaller, much more localized. They're the loyalties that build your identity on a daily basis. The loyalty to yourself, your family, your community, that kind of thing. And these micro-loyalties came into conflict with the bigger loyalties, the demands placed on citizens by the Confederate government and by the occupying Union government during the war. And so the limits of loyalty depends on how citizens navigated these various competing loyalties. Were there relationships between Confederates and Yankees that weren't adversarial? Oh, all the time. And that's sort of what the book really tries to get at, the sort of very nuanced, complex relationships between, you know, so-called Confederates and Yankees during the war. Give us an example of that, please. Uh, So in Woodville, Mississippi, there was a, a store owner. Her name was Betty Beaumont, and I talk about her a lot in the book. Now, Betty had moved to the state from Philadelphia many years before the war. She didn't really particularly express, she, she left a long um, memoir after the war, and she didn't express any particular loyalty to one side or the other. Essentially, she wanted to keep business going at her store, and so she would often feed or house Confederate soldiers, or she would sell goods to occupying Union officers. And you have a lot of examples like that where people would, for example, go into occupied Vicksburg. They might have been strong Confederates, and they wanted to buy things from a merchant in Vicksburg who, in fact, swore loyalty to the Union, possibly because he wanted to keep his trade store open. And so you had a lot of people, some of them who were family relations, too, who said, look, we're going to go about the business of everyday life, but we have to consider, well, is this person loyal to the Union? Is this person loyal to the Confederacy? How do I navigate that? Are you going to cut everybody off during your life because they might have those different kind of political opinions? It was an impossibility. And so you had these kind of daily interactions, buying stuff at a store, just interacting with family members where people on different sides just had to cope because what other choice did they really have? Jarrett, what happened when the war ended? Because if loyalty was to the Confederacy and the Confederacy lost, mm-hmm. I would assume people couldn't shift loyalty to the Union that quickly, or did they? Uh, some of them did. Uh, but the, what really happens after the war, and this is sort of the, the second half of the book discusses this, is the long simmering issue at the heart of everything, which is race. It begins with the issue of race and slavery, but after the war, slavery is abolished. And so what you see in Mississippi is this bigger shift towards – it's not towards uh, like sort of a, rena- a renewed loyalty to the now defunct Confederacy. What it is is trying a loyalty to trying to preserve the racial order in the state – now that the federal government has abolished the institution of slavery. And so a lot of the post, early post-war conflict, and which leads all the way up into the late Reconstruction period, is how do we enforce racial loyalty? In other words, black Mississippians may be theoretically free now, but we're going to try and enforce their racial loyalty to white people in the state, particularly the old planter class, which tries to reassert its authority immediately after the guns cease. And so the issue of loyalty shifts slightly away from national loyalties towards these two former states and more towards local deep racial loyalties and also uh, loyalty to the local Democratic Party, which is sort of the institutional force for this racial loyalty at the time. How did they, the plantation owners and such, work that loyalty or, or demand that loyalty from black freedmen? Largely through violence, unfortunately. What I like to say about, and many historians will talk about during the post-Reconstruction period throughout, especially the Deep South, is you have essentially large-scale terrorist operations, domestic terrorism operating in the state. And so I found a lot of sources immediately after, we're talking very late 1865, 1866, where you have freedmen. These are reports from federal officials of freed people, freed men and women, reporting to them that their former masters are demanding that they work. And if they don't work, they're literally being beaten. 
some of them were killed. You had groups of, of white sort of um, vigilantes going around burning down black churches, terrorizing freed people, demanding that they don't get, quote, too uppity. It was one of the common refrains in there in a lot of the sources, that they don't take the idea of their new freedom and, and actually expect to live it out on, on a sort of a realistic basis. We have this idea, well, that this person was a Confederate and this person was a Yankee, right? And what I'm trying to show in the book is that it's way more complex and nuanced than that. And then when you're actually, if you can actually place yourself in these people's situations and understand what that actually meant, that you can get a deeper understanding of the very deep, complex nature of what nationalism is and how people respond to nationalism. And I think it's really appropriate, given that nationalism is really back in the world news, both on the domestic side and the foreign side these days. Jarrett Ruminski is the author of The Limits of Loyalty, Ordinary People in Civil War, Mississippi. Jarrett, thank you so much for sharing parts of your book with us. Thanks, Karen. I appreciate it. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, it's Season Pass. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. 